Lord God, we thank you for this day, for these days in the life of your church, in the history of humanity, that you have recorded for us and preserved for us. We rejoice in this story because in it we see not only how you worked powerfully to transform the heart of Saul, but we see here how the gospel has come and how the gospel has been made known to such as we. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in your word. We thank you for your spirit that illumines it for us. Be with us today and help us to see Jesus. Amen. God works just in time. God is the potentate of time. If we want to speak perhaps in uh, cultural Christian cliche, we could say that God's timing is perfect. We hear that all the time, right? From people who are nominally Christian or even not Christian. God's timing is always perfect. But what do we really make of God's timing in our lives. The Bible speaks of an acceptable time. It speaks of an appointed time. It, it talks about a time when God himself can be found. The Savior Jesus was sent into the world at the fullness of time. In your, in your uh, assurance of forgiveness after our confession this morning, we read of the year of the Lord's favor with the verse that's on the front of your bulletins this morning. We read about a favorable time. And in the Old Testament reading that we read from Isaiah chapter 49, there is the phrase which formed the title of this sermon, a time of favor. Acts chapter 9, this time is just one moment in time. It is a particularly good time for Saul, who will, of course, become Paul. But it is, it is more than that. It is a window of time that is being opened right in this chapter that allows for the fresh breeze of the gospel to blow not only across this particular road on the way to Damascus, but a fresh wind that blows across all of the earth and a window that has remained open till now, till our time, the time in which we find ourselves today. Now, Solomon in Ecclesiastes wrote a lot about time. You're familiar with it. And I'm going to allow the way he structured Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that talks about a season and a time for every matter and every purpose under heaven. I'm going to allow his words and his structure to be ours this morning as we consider this passage that is before us. And so we begin today then with a time to tear a time to kill, a time to pluck up that which has been planted, a time to hate. Saul hates Christians. He hates everything about them. Probably hates the name, the way. 
hates the one who said, I am the way, hates the way of salvation, the way of the Lord. He hates the idea, the way they talk about walking in the way of the Lord. He hates it, and he hates them. And he is determined to tear up, to pluck up this weed that is growing in the midst of his garden. He's a villain, and he is determined to pursue his purposes not only in Jerusalem, but beyond Jerusalem as well to Damascus, which is some 135 miles from Jerusalem, to carry off those of the way, to kill them if possible. Star Wars came out this week, in case you uh, we're living under a rock and didn't notice that, uh, that that happened this week. I don't actually know the name of the new uh, villain in Star Wars, but Saul is the villain. He's the Darth of the early church. He is vicious and he is relentless in his persecution of the early church. His name and his reputation sent shivers up and down the spine of people when they heard that he was near, that he was coming. And thus the reaction of Ananias in this passage, when he's told that you're going to go over and talk to Saul, that's his reaction. I know who this guy is. I know what he's done. He's the villain of the story, God. An Ethiopian eunuch is one thing, right? Philip is sent to an Ethiopian eunuch on a desert road. As I said last week, it had to be awkward to run up alongside, ask him what you're reading. Do you understand what you're reading? That had to be awkward. But going to Saul is something very different than going to an Ethiopian eunuch on a deserted road. Saul is on a mission. For Saul, it is the killing time. It is the extermination time. It is the extraction time. Get rid of the Christians. Get rid of the followers of the way. But as Solomon says, the sovereign Lord rules over time. He rules over the heart of man, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. And so this killing time, this uprooting time for the apostle or the would-be apostle, apostle is transformed into his appointed time. At the appointed time, day one, God said, let there be light. At the appointed time, day four, God created the Son at the appointed time. The one who would cause light to shine in the darkness came into the world, became incarnate. Light of light, never a time when he was not. He was in the beginning with his Father, and at this particular appointed time, the eternal light, now the incarnate light, now the one who is risen and glorified in the presence of his Father, overwhelms Paul, as it overwhelmed 
as he overwhelmed Peter, James, and John at the time of the transfiguration. The glory of the Lord blazes and it shines around Saul and it arrests the journey of the would-be arrestor. Throws him to the ground and so the mighty warrior is brought low. He's blinded, but he is still able to hear, and as we will see in testimonies that he gives later, still able to see something of the risen Christ in the midst of all of this. He hears, Saul, Saul. And in the repetition of his name, there's both an intensification There's a very intimate, very personal dialogue that is going on. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, one of the reasons that this story is repeated so many times throughout the book of Acts is that these moments for Paul become for him foundational, not only in understanding what his own mission is, not only in being able to give his testimony to explain what happened to him, but in understanding what Jesus is doing in the world. And in this statement, Paul hears something that will then form the bedrock of his theology. The bedrock of Paul's theology is found in the union that exists between Christ and his church. Why are you persecuting me? He hears that identification And he says, who are you, Lord? Now, that Lord is not an identification of Jesus as Lord, at least not at this point, but it's a recognition of the authority of the one who is speaking given the circumstances there. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Jesus identifies himself completely with his church and with any whom Paul has led to be arrested, men and women. And so Paul is blinded on the way to persecute the way by the one who is the way himself. He's blinded by the light. And Saul is led by the hand in weakness for three days. He will dwell in darkness no food and no water, compelled to consider in his blindness the darkness of his own soul in prayer, in repentance, reflecting on the things that he has said and the things that he has done. The Holy Spirit said Jesus would convict the world concerning sin and judgment. And the Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And so Paul, sitting in darkness, has the dawn begin to break over him. Now, one would assume, or perhaps, we know the story, we've read the story, one might assume that if you have Jesus himself appearing to you, stopping you, the light is blind, Jesus himself appears to you, 
has chosen you, that that in and of itself would be sufficient for one's transformation, for one to believe that which Jesus is saying. Last week, we saw the, the eunuch who was traveling down the road. Isaiah 53, of all passages, is the one that he is considering. And, and I said this last week, we might think that if you might understand anything and be transformed by the living and active Word of God, it, it would have been, perhaps, Isaiah 53. And in this case, we might think, well, this is surely enough. Jesus is there. What else needs to take place? And the answer is something else. Once again, once again, as we have seen on every page of the book of Acts, God is pleased to declare, to explain, to convey the good news through a person. But in this case, it, it isn't... We know what, what a significant conversion this is. We might assume, humanly speaking, that God would choose Peter, James, John, Philip, get them into the scene at this point because this person is going to be so significant, and yet God chooses to explain to His chosen one, Ananias, who is heretofore unknown to us. We've, we've not seen him before. We don't know anything about this man except that which is written about him here, that he's a disciple who was in Damascus at the time, one of those whom Paul was no doubt seeking to arrest. Just a disciple who is living there, ready to be used, ready to speak, ready to go. He hears the voice of God, and he, he, he responds with the phrase that I referenced last week that echoes all throughout Scripture, here I am, Lord. It is the response of the faithful. Here I am, Lord, albeit when he hears the message, he's a little bit concerned. He knows of this man. He knows what he has done. And Ananias thus says, wait, Lord, he has, and you can see this in verse 14, he has authority from the chief priests to bind, to carry people off into captivity. In other words, he has a commission. He has a license to kill. He's a commissioned officer to arrest people, to inflict pain and harm. Ananias' concern for Paul isn't just that Paul personally is bad news, and he is, but he's deputized. He is credentialed bad news. He's got the letters of the mark, the letters that can be issued by a king for reprisal. Go do whatever you like on my behalf. And Paul has them. And God's response to Ananias is to say, go, because I am rewriting those orders. I am rewriting those letters. The Lord alone is sovereign. He alone has the ultimate authority to bind or to loose. 
neither Paul nor the high priests actually and ultimately have that authority. But the king does. And he's recommissioning Saul. He recommissions him as the risen and exalted king. Verse 15. He is going to be mine. My chosen instrument to carry my name. There's a possession to which Saul is being called. He is now going to be God's. He's going to carry the name before Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. If you want to do something this afternoon, lay that up against Isaiah chapter 49. In Isaiah 49, Israel was chosen. Israel is the one who was chosen for exactly that purpose, to be the bearer of the name of the Lord. In Israel's failure, there is a servant in Isaiah chapter 49, and the reason it gets confusing is because you can't tell whether Isaiah 49 is talking about Israel or the servant, because the identification between Israel and the servant is so close. And the servant picks up where Israel has failed, takes up the mission and the identity that belong to Israel. The servant will become the one to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the lost ones of the house of Israel. But in fact, that is too small or too light of a thing for the servant to do. God will appoint him to more than that. He will appoint him to be a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now bring that to Acts chapter 9 and ask a question. That's of Jesus Christ that that is said. Jesus Christ fulfills that. He is the servant who does exactly that. Bring it to Acts chapter 9 and the commission that belonged to Israel and then was owned by the servant is now given to this man here. You're the one that I'm going to use to do this mission, to bring my name before Israel, before kings, and before Gentiles to the end of the earth. Saul is chosen to be saved, to proclaim salvation, and to suffer, just like Jesus. Paul will be shaped like his Savior. And this then, this calling, becomes the lens through which we can make sense of the rest of the book of Acts, of all of the letters of Paul and Ananias. That happens now, through you, at this appointed time. And so this time of hate, this time of plucking up, becomes an appointed time. It is an appointed time for Paul. It is an appointed time for this man, Ananias. And then it becomes a time to dance. Now, there's no, at least dan- there's no dancing that we read of in this passage, so I'm using it metaphorically, but borrowing Solomon's language. Brother Paul. That's a big statement. Brother 
Paul, I have got some news for you. I need to tell you about this Jesus. And so the ears hear and the eyes see post-Tenebrox Luke's, the motto of Geneva, the motto of the Reformation, after the darkness, light, the Spirit comes, Paul is baptized, bathed in the grace of God, he eats, and he is strengthened, and it is a time to dance. Because the impossible happened at the least likely time, which turned out to be a time of favor, a time, an appointed time that had been written in God's planner before there was time. I was 15, and I hated the church. There were a couple of things I hated. Top of the list was the church. I had always hated the church. There were things that I liked. I liked sports, and I liked popularity, and I liked being a rabble-rouser. I liked partying. I liked dating. And somehow, in the midst of all of that, I thought, well, if there's a God, I'm good enough to get into heaven. I didn't know a lot of Christians personally, at least not that I knew that they were Christians specifically, but there were some quote-unquote cool people at the school. Turns out they were Christians. I didn't know that at the time, but they hung out together, and I ended up with them, and I ended up on a trip with them, and there was lots of discussion about religion and about the Bible and about Christianity, and I love that. I was glad to debate. I'll enter into that debate with anybody. I'll make fun of it with anybody. And one day, I'm walking down a pathway. <laughs> I'm sorry, that way analogy was, uh, was unintentional given the passage that is before us. And I come across two friends. One of them is sitting right there next to the guy in the green sweater. And this friend tells me that the other friend is struggling with the decision of whether or not to become a Christian. And I turned my head sideways and I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're Catholic, right? He said, yeah. I said, you're American, right? And he said, yeah. So what else is there besides this, besides Catholic and American? I wasn't Catholic, but Catholic was good enough for me. And he said no, and she, she said no, and they went on to explain this gospel. And I was angry. I was livid. I said, don't do anything. This is a cult. Stay here. And I ran to find the gentleman who was the leader of this trip, and I found him. I was with him uh, Friday night, by the way. And I found him, and I seethed venom out of my mouth. I can't actually say the language that I uh, said then, but I cussed, and I said, who do you think you are? 
bringing kids along for something like this, leading them astray. And it was probably about an hour long that I just yelled at him. In the meantime, there were others gathered. They were singing. They were listening. And as I calmed down a little bit, he said, listen, Eric, you don't have to believe any of this. Go ahead in and listen to that talk. Okay? I'll go in and listen to this talk. And then I'm out of here, and I never want to see you again. And I go in, and the man talks about the death of Christ and the need for a response to the death of Christ. And I had heard it a million times. I sat in church. I hated sitting in church, but I sat in church, and I had heard it. And yet that day, the Spirit of God worked. And that which before had been blurry became clear. And the Spirit of God convicted me of sin and misery and of the necessity of deciding. When you're a kid at 15, all you know is that you're making these decisions. You don't realize what God is doing behind the scenes. For against Jesus. And I went after that into my own period of darkness in which I mourned and I wept because I liked the life that I had and didn't think that I could change the life that I had regardless of whether or not I wanted to. And yet I knew that in so deciding, I was choosing hell. I wept and thought that was okay. And a day later, there was a meeting and someone at that meeting gave the worst advice that I've ever heard. It was this, give God a 30-day trial test with your life. Invite Christ into your heart for 30 days, and if at the end of 30 days you are not fully satisfied, money-back guarantee you can go back to being the way you were. Don't use that, okay? Don't imitate that. And yet I thought to myself, that's reasonable. I can do anything for 30 days. Sure, okay, got it. This is good. That way I don't dishonor the name of Christ. If I go back to being me, it's on me, not on him. So I go off by myself, and not audibly, and not with any flashing lights surrounding me. Very clearly, the God of heaven and earth says, you cannot toy with me. You can't play games with me. This is for you all or nothing. Bow the knee or don't, but you don't get 30 days. And in his mercy, that was a favorable time. It was an appointed time. I didn't see it coming, but it was written in the planner before there was time. And it cost. I got back home. Life was different. Friends walked away. All sorts of things took place. And I clung to one verse, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we close today, I ask you this personal question, what time is it? What time is it? I'd like to give at least a biblical answer to that question. It's found on the front of your bulletin. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now 
is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's a time to dance. It's a time to adore. It's a time to worship. It's a time to listen to the Lord and to speak as we have opportunity. I can't preach this passage and not say what pastors, a thousand of them, have said in looking at this passage and that which you and I have heard countless times. But I'll say this. If God, if Jesus can save Paul, can he not save you? If Jesus can save Paul, can he not save the one who is close to you, who you think, humanly speaking, there's no way that this person can be saved? And if God, if Jesus can joyfully employ instruments for the spreading of this light, like Philip, like an Ethiopian eunuch, like Paul, and like Ananias, can he not use us? Is that too hard of a thing for him to change the heart? to use us and to employ us. All praise to Jesus, the light who enlightens in the time of favor. Let's pray.